And welcome to the second episode of Rainbow History Class, the show where we teach you the queer and trans history you definitely didn't get in school. I am Rudy Jean Rigg, the class clown, and today I am really excited to tell you about the story because I'm introducing what I hope to be like a mascot. <laughs> I know, I'm just excited, okay? I'm sorry. No, my name, yeah, my name's Hannah. I'm here as well. This is this is a like a point of vulnerability for me because usually I gatekeep they're researching and I have no idea what we're in for today and knowing the breadth of your interests I'm scared as to what you're going to hit me with yeah okay listen okay before we get to that though and because I like I said I am very excited about the the subject that I'm bringing to you today and I need to share with you (laughs) last night I finally watched the last episode of Ted Lasso (gasps) and I don't know what I want to say apart from the fact that like I literally wept for like half an hour and I just I don't know how to feel because like the thing I kept repeating to my partner was like (laughs) I'll never watch it for the first time again. (laughs) When I begged you to start watching Ted Lasso I was so jealous (laughs) of you being in like season one ep one. I could not watch the last episode for about a month yeah. just because I couldn't let the story be over. I don't know. Ted Lasso, like, it's the, okay, this kind of, like, white guy with a mustache, American football, like, soccer, like, this sport kind of show, I would never, ever, like, have gone for based on, like, you know, yeah. <laughs> face value. But when I was told to watch it, That is like the biggest reminder that I've had in recent times of like literally don't judge a book by its cover. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know really why I was so like anti watching it when you kept suggesting it to me for like, yeah, a very long time. I think that I just was like, oh, sport, you know, like I feel like I was just, I mean, I I grew up being sporty. Yeah. But watching it, I don't know. It was, it's one of those shows that, yes, it was good television, but like for me, I felt really seen as like a sports person. I felt like very, it was very, it was very hard to watch, I think, because it was, it was like very vulnerable. Like this show just plays with this idea of vulnerability in like a really unique way. And every single, when I, when I tell you that I cried every single episode, I, I did. And so I don't know. I just feel like I just need to say that to someone because <laughs> I, I can never get that time back. You and can't. I'm forever changed. You can't. And I'm so glad that you ended up in a place that I've been like saving for you emotionally since I finished it. Thank you. But hey, look, today I have an interesting story that's very close to my heart, much like Ted Lasso is now. But first, before we start, I I have a question for you. Okay. Okay. Do you know what cryptozoology is? So I've got crypto. So obviously I'm thinking blockchain. I'm thinking bros. And then zoology, I do know about zoology, which I think is obviously animals. So I'm thinking, what are those ape NFTs that were a thing? Oh, my God. No offense, Hannah, but you're really wrong. Yeah, see, this is why it's vulnerable for me because I really hate being wrong. (laughs) And that's not to say that I'm, like, very infrequently wrong. That's not the case. Mm. I'm wrong all the time. But Mm. it, it, it just doesn't sit well. No, no. Look, I, I ask you this question because number one, I don't want to mansplain to you. And number two, you know, I need, you know, I just want to, I want to come at it at the right angle, but I'm glad you didn't know because that way I can like just make this really round for everyone. But before we get into answering what cryptozoology is, I do want to preface 
this by saying that today I want to talk to you about one of my longtime special interests, which is cryptids, cryptozoology, you know, that's the, the two different words. You got cryptids, you got cryptozoology. But I want to talk about this through the lens of my favorite little guy, Mothman. I actually am dedicated to the Mothman cause. I have a, a tattoo of Mothman on my arm, which will never come up well in, in the cameras if you're watching this on YouTube. I might stand up though so everyone can see. Look at him. Look at that little guy. Have you ever noticed him on my shot in my on my arm? No, I mean I knew that you were getting your Harry Potter tattoo covered up. Yeah. So that's it's the Mothman, of course. You're probably wondering, well, how and why are we talking about cryptids and Mothman on a queer history podcast? However, as you'll find out, these things are very queer. And today I want to unravel why. Okay. Okay. So let's start off. What is cryptozoology? Well, I'll tell you. Okay. Just hold on, Hannah. Just sit back down in your seat. I will okay. tell you. Okay. Cryptozoology is basically a pseudoscience, right? So it's like it's it doesn't follow regular scientific method. But not only is it a pseudoscience, it's a subculture. And both of those things is really just the search for and the study of the unknown, right? So that's a broad... Isn't that a, just science? No, because cryptozoology is basically like... I'll get into it. Just wait. Okay, okay, okay. You tell me when I can ask questions. No, you can ask questions. Okay, okay. But I just... Like the unknown though, I just... It's like... I feel like all science is the study well, okay. of the unknown. Like that. I think the difference with... And this is what I'll point out straight away. There is what is called the scientific method, which is a rigorous set of rules and boundaries put in place so that we can basically follow a procedural in the effort to find out, quote unquote, the truth. Yes. The yeah, truth yeah. being something that will at some point perhaps change. Whereas cryptozoology or a, or a pseudoscience is a science that does have some kind of methodology to it, but doesn't follow the formula in which we use for what we would call science. Got it. So it's like just uses different methods, right? Like, for example, like not the same thing, but an example would be like an EMF machine when you, you're ghost hunting. That's a scientific method, but it's not like it, it's, it's not an accepted one or a recognized yeah, one. Yeah, exactly. Right. So as a field, cryptozoology originates from the works of a guy called Bernard Hovelman. You know, that's the pronunciation I'm going for, but he's a Belgian zoologist. So anyone from Belgium, please correct me. And you'll love this because last week there was an Ivan and this week there's an Ivan. Ivan T. Sanderson. Who wow, we was, love our Ivans. I know. Shout out to the Ivans in the world, um, who was a Scottish zoologist. So Hoovelman's published a book called On the Track of Unknown Animals, which in French is, and you're going to really roast me I'm for gonna my roast pronunciation. I'm going to roast you. C'est de bêtes inouïes. Show me. <laughs> I want to know how close I was. Sur la piste des bêtes ignorées. I'm going to give myself a 70% there because I find French accents really hard. So he came out with this work in 1955, which, you know, at the time was a landmark piece of work among cryptozoologists that then caused this sort of landslide of more work coming out after that. This book that he published was really the first time the phrase cryptozoology was used, right? So When did he publish it? In 1955. Right. Okay. Yep. Yep. He published this book. It gained traction, the, like the culture of cryptozoology started to flourish. And then the term cryptozoology came out later in 1959. And that term is 
attributed to Ivan Sanderson. Got it. So these two guys are like really contributing to this culture and community back in the 1950s, but it's still relatively new. Got it. That's cryptozoology. So that is, again, the study of the unknown, and it mostly looks at like animalistic creatures. Okay. So like the Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot. Like- so, okay, wait. So there's there's Bigfoot, there's the Loch Ness Monster. What about giant squid? Well, that's a real thing. Okay. The Fresno Nightcrawlers, those little guys. Is oh. it like vampires? No. So Zombies? No. So vampires, zombies, and werewolves are like they are too humanoid to be considered a cryptid and they fall more underneath the like banner of supernatural being. Okay, okay. So there's there's Bigfoot, there is the Loch Ness Monster. Oh, the Mega Shark. That's also probably just a real shark. So the thing is, and you Megalodon. Well, yeah, that a little bit more. I think you're you're touching on something that it it raises a good point in that the things that you're mentioning are like they're just animals, right? Whereas cryptids are surrounded by folklore and stories, which is something that I will get into, but it's really important to the queerness of the Mothman. Got it. Okay. Okay. So like the wolf in Little Red Riding Hood. No, that was just an animal. Like that was just like a furry wolf. (laughs) But it talks. (laughs) Yeah. That's just like. Got it. I mean, I think I've got it. Okay. I think I've got it. I think I like, I've heard of the Loch Ness Monster and I've heard of the abominable snowman. Yeah, cool. Okay. So they're two cryptids. Now, for those of you who are still wondering what cryptids are the Oxford English Dictionary defines a cryptid as follows: an animal whose existence or survival to the present day is just is just. I'm going to start that again. The Oxford Dictionary defines cryptid as an animal whose existence or survival to the present day is disputed or an unsubstantiated. Any animal of interest to a cryptozoologist. So we're really looking at things that are like plausible, that have have like plausible deniability. Like if basically it's like if there's like an old drunken sailor in a pub, they would tell you about this thing and the time they saw it. Yeah, like in Australia we have things called like, well, actually to be fair, I think a lot of Australian cryptids are like misappropriation of like First Nations. First Nations. Stories, so. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, I think the Mothman is definitely not one of those appropriate, you know, misappropriations. So do you believe in cryptids? Because, I mean, I sort of do in a way, but I've never, I don't think we've ever spoken about it. Like, I think so. I was in Scotland and I just, I was very like sold on the idea of the Loch Ness monster. I went to Loch Ness and I sat there for like quite some time. Look, I think I believe in aliens. I believe in ghosts. I believe in vampires and zombies. So I guess I do. I believe in pretty much everything, but I probably don't necessarily believe them in the way that the mythology kind of surrounds them. You know, like I, I do believe there are like, for example, yeah, like vampires, but I think that they probably, like I've met some, like I feel like they suck energy instead of blood. I do believe in ghosts, definitely. Mm. Um, you know, my friend Amelia woke up one night and there was a small colonial boy at the end of her bed. That's happened to a lot of people. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I did research, yeah. as I'm wont to do, <laughs> and I found out who that boy was. Yeah. And he died in her house, <gasps> like in 19... 19- 10 or something like that. Wow. That's really cool. That was cool. But anyway, so yeah, I do believe in those kinds of things. I think that I do believe like people have seen these like animals and why would they not 
be real. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think that like, I'm one of those people that I'm like, I will believe it until proven otherwise. Because even now, like scientists are finding animals that they thought were extinct, but yeah. they found a couple in the wild. Like I think pe- even scientists who are good are always like the ones that are acknowledging what they don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that that's I, I like that. Okay, so now we've had a little bit of a one hundred and one on cryptozoology and cryptids and what they all are. <sighs> it's time to unpack my favorite thing, which is why queer people are almost a circle in the Venn diagram of cryptids. Got it right, and how Mothman seemed to get swept up in this and become the unofficial mascot of cryptid loving queers. Okay. So. <laughs> CLQs. CLQs. Cryptid loving queers, I think, is the next woman loving woman. <laughs> yes, please. I love that. Mothman is my boyfriend. What are you talking about? The story of the Mothman. I, I really like this story. It's like one of my favorite cryptid stories. So I want you to cast yourself to 1966. You're in Point Pleasant in West Virginia. That's a real place? Yes. Okay, it has, look it up. at the time, in the 60s, a population of 5,500 people. So it's quite small, to be honest. Sounds pleasant. It is. It was, you know, a nice place. It was sort of in the forest, re- well, it is, in the forest region of the Appalachian Mountains. Alopecian? No, that's, it's Appalachia. Oh. Alopecia is a <laughs> disease, isn't it? Or a condition. <laughs> Appalachian Mountains. Yeah, Appalachian Mountains. So, <laughs> so, like, little side story, but I, I want you at home to look up the cases of missing people reports and then the cave system in America. And it's basically like you could lay the two maps over top of each other and it's kind of spooky to look at. But I mentioned that because it kind of does cover a portion of the Appalachian Mountains and the Appalachian Trail. So basically the story of the Mothman is West Virginian folklore. So on November 15th in 1966, two young couples from Point Pleasant, uh, Roger and Linda Scarberry and Steve and Mary Mallet reported a sighting of a creature. Linda Scarberry was near the TNT area of Point Pleasant, which is a wildlife and hunting area. And it's the site of a former World War II munitions plant. So it was, uh, you know, storage and, you know. A bit Area 51. Yeah, sort of. That's the sort of mystery, mystere behind it. And so they told police that they had seen a slender, muscular man standing at the edge of the road that was about seven feet tall with white wings and said that she was unable to discern features of its face due to the hypnotic effect of its glowing red eyes. What a picture. Wow. It sounds like she was in love with it. I know, exactly, (laughs) right? So they, having seen this creature stressed, right, they're like, what is this thing at the road? So obviously they were smart and they they drove away. Can you go back to the description? So I need to, like, I had it in my head and then it went away. So I've got glowing red eyes. So seven feet tall. Seven feet tall. White wings. White wings. And it's a man. Slender, muscular man. Okay. Yes. Sounds like somebody (laughs) on their way home from a a gay club. Wow. All right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So they saw this creature and were like, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go. And so they start zooming down the road in their car, except the creature flew after their car, 
screeched at them and followed them as far as Point Pleasant city limits. So this is a whole ordeal. Now, if you're wondering like why these couples down near this munitions plant, isn't that a bit weird? Well, it was basically like a lover's lane. So it's not like, un- like it would, it's not unusual for people to be going down to like do stuff. To do stuff. I don't know. Smooch and smooch and check out Mothman, I guess. Yeah. Wow. Right? They sound like very horny people. Exactly. So it wasn't just this report of Mothman that kind of kicked off the legend. There were heaps more reports over the next few days. And notably, um, the headline for the town newspaper read as follows: Man-sized bird. Creature? Something. They didn't know what to do with this information. I miss like newspaper headlines from like the 50s and 60s. They're amazing. Because there something happened, I think called journalistic integrity, where they stopped selling the story. I just want to be sold a story, okay? Yeah. I want to I want to see a headline that says man bird, man-sized bird creature something and go fuck, that's something I want to read. Exactly. And I also just don't even think stories like that would make it into the paper and anymore yeah or no, the, the, you so. know perhaps maybe some local paper but i i love that like the mid-century newspaper reports were always like a small town was being absolutely throttled by something or terrorized yeah. or and it was always kind of like the community as like as a singular yes and then whatever outside force was kind of wreaking havoc on their lives exactly you know now it's cost of living mm. You never see the headline, price of chips throttles local community, (laughs) terrifies local community. I mean, a current affair, I feel like, still do that. I mean, I think they do. They might do that. No, something more um, supernatural, though. Oh, yes. I love the shock and the wonder that comes through in these headlines. Exactly, exactly. I feel like Australia doesn't have, in particular, like a good... That we, we're not in touch with our... But so we're too sarcastic. Exactly. But anyway, so, you know, town folk were, like, getting pretty freaked out about this moth guy, this bird guy, right? <laughs> town folk. Well, yeah. that's what it, they were. They were the folk of the town, huh? Like, yeah, no, I, exactly. I just think that's such a nice way to refer to people. Thank you. It, like, um, gives them a sense of place and, like, a context among which to live their lives. I think it's really <laughs> nice. It's as if I'm, I'm telling a story. Yeah, town folk. All right, so the town folk, they're talking. Yeah, exactly, they're talking. So the sheriff has to make a comment and he said that he believed that the sighting of this creature was in fact an unusually large heron. And this was... <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I... Uh... <laughs> Why do I find that so funny? I think it's because the heron doesn't fit the description, this no, description wait. at all. Like they don't <laughs> even have, like, have you seen a heron? No, because wait, it gets better. A biologist chimed in and said, I agree. So a biologist corroborated what the sheriff had said and said that the descriptions and sighting matched that of a sand hill crane. Sand hill crane. Like this I do get when the bio, like, because one thing I know from watching like Midwestern like films and stuff Mm. is that the sheriff's always an idiot. That's a a stereotype and trope, but also ACAB. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I'm kind of like, I don't know what he was thinking with Heron, but the biologist coming in, I'm like, this I can see because this, this like has a red, has red like eyes. Yeah. 
not white wings, but red eyes. And I think they do seem like, I, I, I feel like this feels more like. But does it look like a moth that's also a man? <laughs> <laughs> it's really like, it makes me think of things where it's like the amount of shame piled onto people that have supernatural experiences really deters anyone from talking about supernatural experiences, exactly. which is basically coming out. Well, yeah, I mean, the parallel can be drawn there. But look, if you thought the Sandhill Crane was the pinnacle of the story, you'd be wrong because this other guy chimed in, um, Newell Partridge. He said what? that. He, is he a bird expert and his last name is Partridge? No, but I wish that was the case now. Me too. Um, no, he, he, he got in on the bit and he was like, well, actually, I believe that this creature does exist because I heard a buzzing coming from my TV and also my German shepherd dog is missing. <laughs> which is, which, before you laugh. I'm not yet. Before you laugh. Okay. It, this point is interesting I found when I when I pieced together the puzzle of this story because in the original report by the couples that saw Mothman down in the munitions area said that um, Mothman wasn't just on the side of the road like striking a pose. He was actually hunched over a German shepherd dog like eating it. So, Hang on, no, but... I thought that they said that he was just standing there and chased them. Exactly. This is where it gets a bit conflicting. But I think it's interesting how the dog comes up in twice. And I wonder, like, was a dog just sort of thrown in for, like, dramatic flair or was it a genuine, like, sighting, you know, initially? Okay, hang on. German Shepherd, I get. Buzzing from the TV that, like, in, this, in the 60s, come on, TVs were not... Well, they were buzzing already, but I feel like I think it's just one of those sort of I, I'm going to call it like a, a symptoms of like a, a, a cryptid experience in that it like it's quite common for people to in supernatural or you know cryptid experiences to say that they heard buzzing. But like if you've ever had an anxiety attack, like <laughs> your ears buzz sometimes. So if you're under like high stress, I can imagine yeah, your you, tinnitus flares Yeah, if you had lost, up. yeah, if you'd lost your German Shepherd, yeah, stress, the is, world would start buzzing. Yeah, exactly. So that is, you know, the initial year that we saw Mothman, but it gets sort of the Mothman folklore doubles down the year after because this guy that came out though and said actually my German Shepherd is missing and my TV was buzzing, like I think he just wanted he, he just wanted to be part of it. Yeah, he he needed a TV repair guy and like. You know. Yeah, he, he just wanted to, yeah, no, and I relate to him. <laughs> I think he just. Um, He's making the most of a situation. Yeah, he, he just really wanted to be involved, mm, exactly. which is nice. So fast forward to 1967 and there is a tragic event in which uh, the Silver Bridge in, in Point Pleasant collapses and kills 46 people. And this leads people to then say that Mothman was sighted there and or was reason for the, the bridge to collapse, which really cemented Mothman in Point Pleasant as like local folklore because, you know, a tragedy had occurred and then this guy who at this point in time had only really been like seen to have maybe like munched on a dog for a midnight snack is now the sort of center of a huge tragedy. And this kicked off Mothman then being reported at other large tragic events over the years, such as Chernobyl, um, the 1999 Moscow apartment bombings, and even 9-11. So they, you know, Mothman went from being kind of quite frivolous to being like the the blame for big 
world events. When actually he's probably like a superhero, like in Spider-Man. Maybe. Maybe. <gasps> Spider-Man. Cryptid. No. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> so I've just like, look, I just needed to look up at this bridge. Yes. So did they come up with any idea of how this Mothman could have caused a bridge to collapse? I feel like, well, this is the thing. It's one of those like Mothman as a story really divulged from like a newspaper headline into local law because there's just no, there's no like kind of substantiated like report of like how my Mothman collapsed this bridge. No, have like engineers gone in and decided how the bridge collapsed? I mean, probably, but to be honest with you, it's not the main focus of the story, so I didn't really spend my time looking into that. But (laughs) the breadth of my questions, you're going to have to (laughs) anticipate them more. I will, I will in the future. But for now, um, look, the Mothman legend really, it was good for the town, right? It brought brought business into Point Pleasant because people from other regions started becoming interested in the sort of legend of Mothman. Yeah, greetings from Point Pleasant, home of the Mothman, postcards. Well, they expanded far past postcards. They have a Mothman Diner, a festival that boasts 10,000 attendees annually, a museum and a statue. Plus, obviously, the film in 2002, uh, The Mothman Prophecy, is really popularised. The Mothman is like this. I really want to take you to Point Pleasant. I really want to go. I would love to take you to Point Pleasant. Well, last year when we were on that train from North Carolina to New York, we went through West Virginia and, like, the, for that, like, 45 minutes, I was like... Was I asleep? Yeah. (laughs) So this is a story of the Mothman. And up until this point, I really haven't mentioned the word gay for a long time. So get it in. The gays will turn off. Exactly. How did Mothman become a gay icon and sort of, you know, add to this sort of canon of queer cryptids? Well, there's a few things we need to go through before we get to that answer, because it's a little bit of a complex one. I want to start with why we love folklore because that's really important. Folklore is one An of the incredible those... album. It is. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Still sad that not going to the concert, but we'll live. We'll hopefully. live. Why do we love folklore? Well, it's one of those things. It's been around forever. All cultures have myths, legends, stories, and folklore that is really used as a form of storytelling. And it shares with us things like values, morals, customs, and really it's a way to shape behavior, right? Because when you tell stories of folklore, you're often trying to impart the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. The important thing about folklore to this story that I'm telling today is the fact that it folklore ties us to our history and to our community. Right. And so um, I read this really incredible paper by Brenton Watts when I was researching this called The Mothman and Other Strange Tales, Shaping Queer Appalachia Through Folkloric Discourse in Online Social Media Communities. Long title, but it's not that much of a lengthy read. So I really recommend reading it. If they really, if you wanted a title, he could have gone for bird something. (laughs) Yeah, Um, That's a headline. And, and in this um, paper, um, what says that folklore gives us something to talk about and that they argue that the way that we talk about folklore also reveals a lot about how we forge and maintain our identities through interaction with others. Hmm. So Already we have this sort of like call and response in terms of like figures that we use in these folklore stories and what they mean to communities and then therefore how communities respond to figures that resemble those in the stories. So it's like, okay, in the story of Mothman, Mothman is this sort of like kind of maybe scary, overarching, unpredictable, like unidentifiable creature that 
was sort of like almost never given a chance to like do anything nice or good and then all of a sudden is having the like the finger pointed at them. Yeah. Which is kind of similar. Oh, right? You know what's interesting though? I feel like, okay, so I feel like that conversation really or that idea around folklore and you know how it's really important to like communities to bring people together and have mm. something to talk about that is just the best articulation of my opinion or the way that I've spoken about gala like yeah. doing Taylor Swift because I think you know there's all this conversation around you know Taylor Swift and I think a lot of the criticism of people that believe Taylor Swift is you know queer um, and is leaving these clues um the criticism is it's sort of focused on you know outing a celebrity when when actually I really think of it more in that sense which is about like a folklore there we go yeah around around this central figure who you know has I guess had the finger pointed at them or and has kind of like gone up and down in terms of like her standing in in the culture yeah but yeah that is that is the thing I think for young queer people gala is a really interesting folklore because it does bring people together and be kind of like a bit of a queer language or a code if you if you identify with gala then you can kind of like find out your identity I think that's yeah I mean I'm not trying to say that Mothman is Taylor Swift, but no, and neither would I say that Taylor Swift produces folklore because I think they're slightly separate. But I do believe they're comparable. Yeah, that's so interesting. Gosh, Swifties are. Big I think yeah. I mean, I think there's it's a law. Um, yeah, well, that's the thing. It's a law. Yeah, it's a law that is surrounding an individual that is actually severed from who that individual is or isn't or them entirely. Exactly. Like, you know, something like the Gala phenomenon is not about Taylor, Taylor Swift, Swift at not. all, really. If Mothman is real and is out there, the the Mothman kind Man. of phenomenon, yeah. no one knows a thing about Mothman. No, no, he could be an accountant for all we know. Y- yeah, like it's not really about him. It's about coming together around him. Yes, and exactly. A scapegoat for our fears. Exactly. So for queer people, cryptids are a way to explain how being queer makes them feel or how, you know, like just generally like how to explain queerness in a way that is sort of direct. Cause it's like, again, like we said, it's a comparable, like it's, it's quite easy to explain if that fails, it's just through relatability, being able to relate to these characters again, that are like kind of ostracized and not easily explained because maybe there's not enough language. Another example, not of a cryptid, but just of like how random figures can be co-opted into the queer community is the Babadook, which isn't a cryptid because I think they're just like a supernatural being, but this has nothing to do with folklore. It's got nothing to do with community, but the concept of the Babadook being like this heroic queer figure only occurred because Netflix mislabeled the Babadook as an LGBTQ plus film in 2017. And all of a sudden people were like, oh yeah, of course, like he's our guy, our man, the Babadook, which, you know, has a nice, like it has intersections with like queerness and horror and blah, blah, blah. But like, I think that is really interesting in how we, you know, have historically can, well, we continue to historically like associate and tie ourselves with things that are other than human. I think, yeah, and I guess, but sort of villainy uh, as well. Like, exactly. if we're, you know, queer coded villains, but, you know, even if that was manufactured and put onto us, we still continue to kind of yassify villains. Exactly. I think, though, with this, and I, because I did think about this and whether I wanted to talk a lot about queer coding, because, you know, that's a big subject. And I, I decided to not do that because I would argue that queer coding 
particularly in the 20th century, was really associated with like film and TV and like the manufacturing of characters through that medium with that amount of control. And I would argue Yeah, this that is really like it's sort of by it's like grassroots exactly. rather than like projected downwards. Exactly. So I would kind of argue that the only for cryptids in particular and monsters, it's really hard for mainstream like cis heteronormative values to queer code these things. Whereas like it's kind of one of those rare instances where queer people have queer coded something that that has been sort of created in a separate space to like film and TV. I don't know. I think that's something to unpack there. But like I just, yeah, I had that written down. And I was like, I, I definitely feel like that's worth mentioning. But moving on. So obviously through this, we can see that really there is this sort of phenomenon that's happening in that people obviously love cryptids. They love monsters. And so we have these spaces opening up, particularly when the internet really kicked off, where there was sort of these communities where sort of I would call them like weirdos would hang out, you know, and I say that really affectionately and people who were not, you know, who clearly had interests that weren't football or like, you know, like, I don't know, something else that's popular. What else is popular? Cooking. What What are people's interests? I don't know. This is mine. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, do you know what I mean? Like they're not dancing. These people aren't hanging out on like Martha Stewart forums. Do, do we know of anyone pre-internet that was queer that found any kind of solace in Mothman? Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I mean, probably like uh, on a personal level, but yeah. there were no like queer mo- Mothman clubs. I mean, I mean, we'd have to, like, like you said, go grassroots and try and find them, but you know, it. So these- if you're a member of a of a offline queer Mothman club, please let us know. Exactly. So you know, when the internet did start opening up, and we had online spaces for communities, people who were hanging out in these communities, if they weren't queer, they obviously were sort of like. They were into monsters and things that didn't really exist, well, arguably don't exist. So what has been reported when I was researching this is that these people were generally more accepting of things that were stigmatized or were not like in the sort of status quo of mainstream culture. And so queer people who were in these communities or who found these communities were able to express themselves, were able to relate, even if just because of their like shared interest of something that was stigmatized, you know, like I don't, you know, I don't think even now it's easy to go around being like, oh, I believe in the Mothman or, oh, I think aliens are real, like even though they are. It's kind of not one of those things that you can really put on the table on a first date or at least not with the wrong person. Yeah, (laughs) like if you, if I think it's probably something you should put on the first date and then help screen people. Well, on my first date, I, I believe I asked my partner Luke, both if he believed in ghosts and aliens. And then his reply was, I picked up some really weird stuff on my sleep recorder. I don't know what it was. I think it's a demon. Do you want to listen to it? And so we've been together for five years. (laughs) It really worked out for me. Um, That's interesting. My first date with Hannah, my my fiance Hannah with the same name, was I said, I bet you think I'm Alice from the L word. And she said, yes. And then I was like really upset about it. Oh no. Well, that that's, that's a. No, I love Alice, but. Okay. You've got anyway. a thorn in your side there. I do. So now we can see really where the sort of threads between queerness and cryptid and cryptozoology are coming together. The two loves are coming together to form a beautiful, freaky little baby. Yeah. This was really exacerbated by platforms like Tumblr, which fandoms have lived and breathed on for many, many years. And there's this great post on Tumblr that 
we'll put on our Instagram. It's basically saying like society thinks LGBTQ plus people are monsters, queer people gathering up monsters and cryptids into our arms. These are ours now. Society. Wait, that's not what I meant us too late Babadook is a gay icon fuck off I'm dating Mothman like it's kind of that, that sense of reclamation right we're doing something that we're very good at we're reclaiming a narrative and we're re- like we're remixing source material which is so queer and I think that's something that we've done forever um but it also plays into the sort of the whole concept of like loving and feeling represented and wanting to protect and champion cryptids and monsters I think really comes down to a quote I found as well when I was researching that someone said that my existence is accepted but it's also denied which is kind of like how people think of monsters and cryptids like obviously you'll always get someone that's like no that that absolutely does not exist but there's a lot of people that go well but then they also are going like oh that's so silly to believe that you know Mm. sort of similar yeah there is a sort of interesting narrative around well there has been around queerness or this sense that the way that we were demonized or hated in in the you know in the society over you know maybe the 20th century or something like that was always like out of step with or like disproportionate to how much like our queerness was like valid or believed yeah like it was it was kind of terrifying but on an individual level there was so much like it's you know that doesn't really exist or that's not really a thing or like you know it's a phase. Well, it's like, I mean, even if you compare like, so for example, like, you know, all these people saying that they saw Mothman, like I was watching a bunch of um, news reports over the years of, you know, people in Point Pleasant being interviewed about their experiences with Mothman. And when they're being interviewed on like a, a one-on-one basis, a lot of them are like, yeah, I saw Mothman. Yep. Seen him a couple of times. But then when you look at it on like a community and larger level, it's just like there's this sort of manufactured sense of panic, which I think is comparable in a way to like trans panic that we're seeing like over the last couple of years. I think that's, yeah, it's so true because on this one-to-one level, there's a, there's a sort of a, an, there's kind of like a ignorance or a, like a, you're not too worried about it or like, you know, somebody maybe who's trans and you're just like, Mm. oh yeah, Mm. I know Rudy. Exactly. But yeah, collectively there's like the panic comes out. Yeah, it's 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 really bizarre. So I guess really what what happened is that sort of that reclaiming of like things that have scared a large group of people, right? Like the Mothman really freaked people out and they were really wanting some answers. And I think, you know, other like cryptids like the Loch Ness Monster, the Fresno Nightcrawlers, the Chupacabra, like they're all sort of things that aren't camp, they're not necessarily queer coded but they are I guess characters or like figures that the queer community can easily see themselves in or co-opt as like community figures in a way you know Mm. to sort of like again like we're remixing folklore into our own sort of lore and canon and it just so happens that that really flourished on the internet and when I think about why or how this happened I think it is really hard to find one single line of a b c d equals queer people love cryptids it's that doesn't exist and I think it's because it's like a really intersectional experience in terms of folklores being something that are have a very long and complex history and then also I think something that you know, we haven't really spoken about, but I think is really interesting is the fact that we're finding this really interesting overlap of neurodivergent folks who also really love cryptids and monsters and supernatural or have a really similar special interest or hyperfixation with, Mm. and 
we know now that like neurodivergent people are often queer in some way or gender diverse. And so when you put those three pieces together, it paints a really interesting picture, I think. And I think that that tells more of a story of how and why the flames of this really cool community got fanned so much and so quickly because, of course, like... I mean, I think if you can say one thing about, like you know, neurodivergent people, when we have a special interest, like we contribute to the oh. culture around it because we'll put in the, we'll put in the hard yards to exactly. like find things, you know, you know, a, a community of neurodivergent people on the internet is a very powerful, powerful force. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, and that's the thing. And I think, you know, when you think about, I mean, uh, speaking from it, you know, an autistic perspective, even, you know, when you have interests, you feel like they're a part of you. So then when you, even if you like put the queer lens over that as well, it's like, if you're looking at the Mothman, you're looking at like the Loch Ness monster and that's your interest, but also like you see yourself represented in that, that is like a part of your identity represented in that. I like, that is super powerful. I also think there, you know, like what we're talking about is monsters. And I think on two levels, so the Queer people have been called monsters yeah. for, you know, most of modern history um, in a post-colonial uh, Western sense. And then you also have trans people like that would be even another level in terms of like trans women in particular were like seen as the ultimate monsters, you know, like in, in Psycho. Mm. And yeah, there's also a sense of like people that are autistic or neurodivergent in some way have grown up being pathologized, either outcast from society mm. or feel like monsters or just told there's something wrong with them or they're not human. Yeah. Um, because, you know, a human brain is this and you, there's something well, outside really, of that. It's that really you interesting. Are. Like I think it's Gaelic um, folklore of changelings. Yes. And um, I'm saying back in the day in that I don't know the exact date, but pe people are now thinking that the, the folklore of changelings was actually not in fact like because of any sort of fairy I've or fae. I've seen that, yeah. It's because of the sort of expression of autistic traits in like babies and toddlers and how that was disconcerting and, and it couldn't possibly be put down to anything other than like something other than human. Yeah. Like yeah. it's just bizarre. It's And I think we could see that in, in so many different cultures and folklores, but I yeah. think that's the thing. It's like the thread that connects this together is like a, a human should be heterosexual, have a brain that's wide in a certain way, should be cisgender, should be, you know, this is what a human looks like. Mm. And, you know, you can even see it with like race as well. You know, First Nations people here were considered not not human yeah. and that that's the case you know in in so many like colonized places there's this idea of like what a human is and then the answer to anyone that falls outside of that is they are not human and what is not human if not an animal but a monster yeah. and i think that's probably where we get this around this narrative around cryptids and, yeah. and the people that love them yeah and now I love them exactly I think if you're listening to this or you're watching us and you're thinking wow like this must be like really scary I can't get into this like I'm a little baby I would really recommend just googling queer cryptid and just checking out some of the like the incredible fan art a lot of it's like really fun and silly and it is camp now which I think is reflective of like modern queer culture and I feel like once you get into it and hopefully after listening to this this episode 
it's it is like it's a nice little recluse and it's a nice little corner of the queer community which I personally like to lean into and I think that it is really interesting so thank you for like yeah listening into my wild ramblings about the Mothman and cryptids I could go over some other cryptids maybe in later episodes or some other parts of cryptozoology maybe I'll do an episode on vampires or something that'd be like really fun but yeah I'm I'm glad I finally got to share my interest with you I am absolutely hooked thank you so much like we've gone from me thinking it was somehow <laughs> blockchain related into me finding a kindred spirit in a man no 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 a moth man a moth man <laughs> a moth man thank you and if you you know if you want to see some of that art um that you spoke about where you can check it out on our socials at rainbow history class on, you know, Instagram, TikTok, all that kind of thing. Um, you want to tell them about the Patreon? Oh yeah. We have a Patreon. If you want to head over there and not only support what we do here and make sure that we can keep doing rainbow history class, but also reap the benefits of the additional exclusive content, like bonus episodes, behind the scenes content, as well as, you know, things like pre-sale links to um, merch and live shows. Um, I would highly recommend going over to our patreon yeah take a look but uh yeah thanks for tuning in to rainbow history class i am rudy jean rig and i'm hannah and look as we always say not everything's gay but there's gay in everything including point pleasant west virginia (laughs) 